Let's go ahead and get started. We're going to pray. We want to jump in. Lord God in heaven, thank you for watching over us this last week. Thank you for the reminder that um, in a cold country like, or a cold season like uh, just this last week, what a blessing it is to have houses that have central air and heating and other kinds of heat. Thank you, Lord, for your pre- preserving us and protecting us. We pray, Lord, for those who are ailing and sick. I think especially right now the Don Gillies and my mom and my aunt and others, Lord, we ask you to st- sustain them and strengthen them. Be with Arden Prentice as she um, gives birth or is having labor. We ask you to watch over her and the baby and, and grant them good health, Lord, and a good delivery. Continue to be with Ben Vizier, Father. We pray and that you would uh, sustain him and strengthen him and help him to recover. Lord, as we uh, enter into this class, we pray that you would help us, that uh, it would be informative, it would be enjoyable, and also, Lord, that it would draw us closer to you. That's always the chief end of all that we do, we hope, is to glorify you and enjoy you forever. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So we're doing this class, uh, why do you do that, right? So all these questions. In fact, somebody just gave me another question today, which is great. If you have other questions you think I should answer, bring them on. Bring them on. Um, But also remember to uh, do invite those who are visiting, uh, who are kind of, you know, trying to figure out who we are and stuff. This is a great class. This is really primarily was what that was meant for was for them, uh, but for others as well. And so, um, we're going to be covering subjects of worship, church government, complementarianism, who is John Calvin, catechisms, and church membership. Those are just broad categories. So our purpose, as I mentioned last week, is uh, to help those who are, pres- who are not Presbyterians, not familiar with this, uh, show them, um, in a sense, that they walk away saying, wow, these people really do follow Jesus, try to be faithful to Jesus, and are committed to Scripture. Even if they don't agree with us in the end, I still feel like we've won, like we've succeeded, okay? Because I think that that's a big, important point. But then for us, for the rest of us, it's to help us to make disciples. We have to always remember that the faith is meant to be passed on. And so helping us, giving us the equipment we need to be able to pass on to our children, our grandchildren, our neighbors. When somebody comes in the front door and worships and then walks out and goes, why do you people do that? Oh, I'm glad you asked because three weeks ago we talked about this. And then you can answer that question. All right, so last week... We talked about uh, the regulative principle of worship. We talked about, uh, we went through the first principle, which is uh, what is commanded is required. Secondly, what is forbidden is forbidden. And then we talked about the auth- about authorized permission, the aspects and circumstances that Scripture neither commands nor forbids, but fits within the general rules of God's Word. So that was last week. And that, by the way, can I go back? Thank you. And so this, by the way, is kind of a, a soft governing um, framework for a lot of these answers to a lot of these questions. And so the reason why I'm going to bring this, I'm going to, I want to emphasize this to you, because this part right here uh, is going to require some thinking, going to require, like when we get to baptism, for example, there's no soundbite theology on a lot of those issues, right? No, just, just show me in one verse. I remember when we were in the Church of Christ, it was... Show me in one verse where it says that, right? And so it's going to requ- it requires us to look at Scripture and then 
build that case. And so, anyways, just letting you know. So we did this one last week, regular principle of worship. This week we're looking at united prayers and responsive readings, and we're also going to talk about bodies. Um, because I think that that's going to be important. I had some questions on both of those, so that's good. Somewhere here. Okay, so here's a background assumption that I have. We're talking about responsive readings and, and uh, united prayers. Here's a background assumption that public or congregational worship is meant to be the work of the congregation. If we really do believe the priesthood of believers, then that becomes more of what we do. We all participate as a priesthood together. So it's not the work of one professional. It's not the work of a band of professionals performing to spectators. I've got to emphasize this. It doesn't preclude choirs and things like that, but you've got to emphasize this because uh, it was an important item that the Reformers and the Reformation fought to restore. Remember our church history? We taught some church history a while back. Is that that had... It was a slide. It was kind of like what they call it. They call that the mission creep or something like that, right? It was this slide through the centuries where less and less people felt they could sing. Most of the language is in Latin and worship anyways. And so worship ended up falling into the hands of the professionals, the monks and the priests, and that was primarily it. And if you happen to know a tune or two, you could throw it in there. You could sing it as part of the congregation. But everything began to happen up at the front and nothing was really going on in the congregation, okay? And so when the reformers kicked in, when they started hounding on a lot of the things that we normally think of about the Reformation, this was one of the big items. Worship needed to be restored to the congregation. And so that's why John Calvin and Martin Luther went back to prayers and worship and songs in the common language so the congregation would all participate, okay? So that's a principle you've got to keep in your head, and it fits in with the general rules of Scripture, as we mentioned uh, earlier. So, uh, so this is my background assumption. I just want you to know it. I'm telling you right up front. Okay, I'm not running for office, but if I was, this would be my you know tagline, right? So, public and congregational worship is meant to be the work of the congregation, not just the, not professional or a band of professionals performing to spectators. Any questions on before I go on on this? Okay, here we go. So we're going to talk about singing for just a minute. And I'm going to give you, and you'll see why I'm making it, doing it this way. So here's a bunch of questions and you've got to answer my questions. You've got to engage with me here, okay? So how is congregational singing the work of God's sacred society? How is congregational singing the work of God's sacred society as church? It's not a trick question. It's okay. It does involve the congregation, right? But what? So D singing one song while Leah is singing a different song at the same time, and, and Randy is singing something else in Greek, and uh, Yvonne, she knows Swahili, so she's singing in Swahili. I mean, is that what we mean? No, what do we mean? Yes. Yes. And it's together. Notice that it's together. Now, you can do sometimes layers of different languages, but it's, usually, it's always the same song, so everybody kind of knows where you're at, right? I remember going to Peru one time and had no idea. I don't speak any Spanish. None. Maybe just like Buenos Dias. That's about it, right? And there they were. They were all singing Peruvian, 
But when they came to songs that I knew, I knew exactly what they were singing, even though it was in a different language, right? And um, that's really, really beneficial. So congregational singing is the work of God's people, and it's us uniting together, singing the words together, the same words so that we know what we're doing, right? All right? So what are some of the items and actions that make, it, that make singing congregational? We've already mentioned a couple. We're singing the same words, singing the same tune. What else? Anything else can you think of? Oh, we're using hymnals where we've got the same source to draw from. Yeah, sometimes the Psalms, yeah. What else? Yeah? Ah, hold that thought. Good job, Lisa. You've, Lisa's already taught the class. I'm done. Oh, it's a secret. We'll, we'll, we'll inform everybody in a minute. All right, so what is congregational singing? Think of hymns, courses, and anthems. What Lisa said was... I often think of singing, our congregational singing, as prayers. Okay? Not just praise. It is praise, but also prayers. Petitioning. Right? Think of some of our... Huh? There's lament. Right? But notice that, that in the singing, we're singing together, all joined together with our voices. And what are we singing? We're singing... We're actually singing creeds, if you don't know that, by the way. You're singing what you believe. You're singing prayers, you're singing laments, you're singing praises. Notice that? I think that that's important. This is just kind of an underlying principle. When we finally come, you already can see where I'm headed to this. Okay? Yes? It is a conversation with God. Right? Yes? It is a sacrifice. Yes? So Hebrews 13, you're offering the sacrifice of your lips and praise to God. Right? Very good. Okay? All those things. Okay, that is congregational singing. This is why it, uh, I love... So the last two churches I've been at, this one and the one in Midland, everybody sang. That makes my heart so happy. Right? Because we're a priesthood of believers. Gathered together. I've been to churches where, and for various reasons, music was too hard for anybody to sing or whatever, and half to less than that would sing. The rest would just stand around and look around. Okay? And that's just not right. We've got to, we want to encourage and we want to do the things we can to encourage congregational singing where everybody joins together. Okay, so hymns, courses, anthems, or prayer, their lamentations, their, their sacrifice, their praises, all those things. Okay, we're doing it together vocally, unitedly. So here's a question. Can congregational singing be anti- antiphonal? I always pronounce it wrong because I put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. But can it be antiphonal? Do you know what antiphonal is? Yeah, so back and forth. So this side over here sings like the first part of the first verse, and this part sings the second part of the second verse. Can it be antiphonal? Sure it can. So look at, just real quick, look at Ezra. Let me just show you one example. Ezra chapter 3. So in Ezra 3, looking at verse 10 and 11, as everybody is celebrating the, 
establishment of the rebuilding of the temple says in Ezra 3, verse 10 and 11, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to God, for it is good for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. So it's antiphonal. And you'll see why I'm getting this, but this is antiphonal. So it's a responsive singing even, okay? And if responsive singing is prayer, it's responsive prayer. So if, if antiphonal singing is responsive praising, it's responsive, it's responsive praising. You, you, you get where I'm going with that, right? All right. Stop me if you have any questions. If not, I shall move forward. Okay, so then what then is the difference between corporate congregational singing and reading together or reading responsibly the Psalms or other passages of Scripture or things like that? What's the difference? There is none, except somebody might say, well, there's musical intonation with the singing. Well, if you listen to us responsibly read, there's musical intonation when we responsibly read if we're all reading together. Okay, there's just that rhythm. All right? In fact, us reading together is actually called plain song. Okay, it is singing. It's a form of singing, but it's just very monotone. All right? So, but I I just want to emphasize this because some of our friends that are coming out of different contexts, they think of responsive readings and united prayers as a Roman Catholic hangover or something that's foreign to Scripture or something that's evil and wicked and bad in some way. And I just want to just a simple way of making the point. No, we're singing together. What are, what are songs? Prayers. Oh, you're singing a written prayer? Well, what's the difference between that and praying it together in a monotone voice? Well, there is no difference. Okay? This was, revol- I'm going to tell you, this was, revol- this, was, this was revolutionary for me. When I was in the Church of Christ, we, ha- I'm sorry, I don't mean to badmouth them. I'm just giving you my experience. And everybody, they hated written prayers. One of my sons who goes to one, one of my grandsons who goes to one uh, in October told us why he does not uh, pray with us when we do a written, use a written prayer like the Lord's Prayer, a memorized prayer, because it's a sin to do so. It's what he was been taught. Okay? And that was the world we lived in. All right? And there are other traditions that feel the same way. It was the moment, one, mo- one Sunday morning we were singing and I realized the hymn I was singing was a prayer. And I went, Wait, I'm using a written prayer. How else could we sing? Bing, lights went on. Okay? Sir? It's really funny how uh, you think about um, think about football games or or something like that, and, or or even a public demonstrations of some kind. How often chanting comes up? Why is that? Because it builds the camaraderie of this flash community that just showed up, you know, and started doing that, right? So. 
really interesting how we intuitively fall into that and already know that. This question is really just an expansion of this one. It's the same thing, just said a little bit differently. What's the difference between corporate congregational singing in unanimity, singing together unitedly, and praying together in unison? Well, you've already answered that. There's really no difference between the two. Okay, yes. I would say so. I would say this actually feeds that. When we do these things together, we remember we're part of a body and we're doing it together. We just said it together. We just sang it together. We just prayed this together. And so it does, I think it does do, that's part of it. It does build that solidarity or help to build that solidarity. It won't do it by itself, obviously. Something about the Holy Spirit or something, you know. Right, yeah. And it's fitting to do, to do, like a confession of sin, it's fitting to do it in a first person singular and also do it in plural because we're still doing it together. So I love the way the Lutherans do their confession of sin. They say, I confess to you and to all of my brothers and sisters around me. And then they, but they're all saying it together, right? So it still builds that, builds that camaraderie. So, yes. Okay, anything else here? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes. 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 Absolutely. Yes. All right. Okay, what do I do here? There we go. Okay, so let's go through let's go through several passages of scripture. I just want you to look at prayer and uh, and the the unity part of it. So let's go to Second Chronicles seven and verse three. We got a lot to do, so everybody just run quick. Second Chronicles seven and verse three. This is at the temple's dedication. Um, so somebody read verse three. Second Chronicles seven verse three. He'll read that. Raise your hand, quick, 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 quick. Okay, Scott. So who's, who's saying those words, for he is good and for his steadfast love endures forever? Who's saying that? All the people gathered and fell down together. Okay, we're going to talk about bodies in a little while, so keep that verse in mind. But they're all praying together. So notice you have that pattern. And these are, I just want to take you through all these very quickly. I want you to go to, now to the New Testament, go to Acts chapter 4. Sometimes you run across friends who will say, well, that was in the Old Testament. Show me something in the New Testament, right? Because that's all done away, or they'll say something like that. Well, here you go. So Acts chapter 4, and I'm going to read this, verses 23 through 31. This is after Peter and John have been uh, forbidden to preach, and they said, um, in chapter 4, they said, uh, you decide if we should obey you or not, but we're going to do what God says. And they walk out, they got beat up and everything. 
So they come home and they gather the friends, it says. So they gather the Christians. And notice what it says, starting in verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported with what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said... Now, how can you say this with voices out loud together? I'm going I'm to ask that question in a minute again, but here we go. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers are ga- were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed with Herod and Pontius Pilate, etc., and so on and so forth. So hear our prayer, and, they, and the Lord answer their prayer. How can they raise their voice, voices together to God and say, how can they, they say these words? Ah, they read them, maybe have done them over and over, so maybe it's memorized, but the chances are far better, more likely, because it seems like this is the first time that they're it was actually written out and incorporated Psalm 2, that the apostles, Peter and John, actually wrote them out. And in some way, though, they all were lifting their voices together and saying these words. So right there, even in the New Testament, you have Christians gathering together, praying together, out loud together, using the same words together. Right? I mean, it sounds kind of basically elementary, but I think this is pretty helpful. Okay? All right, any questions? Yes, sir. Yeah, it wasn't extemporaneous. Yeah. Yes. By the way, Wes and I both, uh, Pastor Wes and I both write out most of our prayers because we don't want to take you from Dan to Beersheba in a prayer, you know, and it's a joke. Try to stay focused. Very helpful. And so again, you have this one voice, or this, yeah, this one voice uh, again in Romans chapter 15. So here we go to Romans 15. And then I'm going to ask somebody to read verses 5 through 7. Who will read Romans 15, 5 through 7? Mike Wells, can you do that? Romans 15, 5 through 7? Yes, sir. Notice that, the, that his prayer, his aim, is that they would be able, uh, with one voice, to glorify God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whether that's in singing, whether that's in praying, uh, just, just simply a monotone prayer together. But isn't that interesting? With one voice. Okay? doesn't say one sentiment or one mind, which he's not afraid to use the one mind talk in other places. So he's very specific. With one voice. There is a value and there is a biblical... Uh, texture here, a pattern for us to pray together the same prayer and so forth. And then, what about heaven? You walk into Revelation chapters 4, all the way through Revelation you have two things going on when it comes to the heavenly beings. And we're not going to read these. I'm just going to summarize them. Okay? But oftentimes you have the heavenly beings, you have the 24 elders, you have the, the four angelic beings and whatever. You have them singing 
But there are several times it says, such as in Revelation 4, 11 through 14 and 11, 15 through 18, that they said these words together, that they said these words. I mean, if God is not ashamed in heaven to have his angelic beings and all the others to pray together this united prayer, then surely he's not ashamed of us doing it. Do you get my point? All right. Okay. So that was, if you want those passages, there it is. Revelation 4, 11 through 14, 11, 15 through 18. And you can find others in there. And then lastly, so in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, um, pray like this, right? And then it's the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, etc. But in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, when he's giving the Lord's Prayer, he says, when you pray, say. There's a difference. Let the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, be a guide to the way you pray. Luke 11 let the Lord's Prayer be your prayer. Does that make sense? So I'm just giving you several examples. Okay? Alright, I tried that on my grandson. It didn't work. But that's okay. I was right and he wasn't. Those things happen. As Nellie would say, little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems, you know. And then you got grandkids. Alright, any questions on any of this up to this point? So therefore, when we join together in united prayer and responsive readings, this is not a Roman Catholic action. I've actually had somebody visiting here say that to us, to me. It may be, it just may be, this is hard for our Reformed people to swallow this pill. It just may be that our Reformed Catholic, our uh, uh, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Lutheran, Anglican friends, they may do it, yes, but after all that we've just looked at, they may actually be getting it right. And I think that's important for me to say that because just because those other folks do it does not make it wrong. Well, that's what... I don't care. Maybe they got it right. If it's in the Scriptures, so what? Okay? So, any questions up to this point? Does this help? Did you find this helpful? Anybody? At least one? All right. I see some thumbs. Yes. All right. Can I get a heart? Okay. All right. All right, so let's talk about bodies. Can we talk about bodies? Me being the great anti-Gnostic, writing my doctoral thesis in Gnosticism. This is huge to me. This is actually very personal to me. Uh, Not just my doctoral thesis, but it was one of those lights on moments, those aha moments, uh, somewhere early on in my Christian pilgrimage that was extremely important. And I think that that what we're going to be talking about, even though it's just about worship, I think it has something for us to be able to say to people who disdain their bodies. When you realize this, then you, you realize, as I said once in a sermon, that Jesus loves your body. Your body's beautiful to the Lord. He made it. Okay? And I think that's important. Okay? All right, bodies. So, how were we, crea- we humans created? I'm sorry? In God's image? Fearfully, wonderfully made. Out of the dust of the ground. What was, the, what was out of the dust of the ground? As a ghost? As a ghost? Ah, his body. And then what else became, what else did God do as part of creating us? 
Yes, right? He became a living soul. Body and soul. You were created. We were created as body and soul beings. Okay? Animals were not soulish beings in the way we would use that language. They're not soulish beings. They're just bodily beings. Angels are soulish beings, if you will, and not necessarily bodily beings, even though there is some, some sense of physicality to them, it appears. But we are specifically made as body and soul creatures. And so since we are body and soul creatures, how much of us does God care for? Yes, good answer. Gold star and a chocolate chip oatmeal cookie for you. That's right, He cares for all of us, body and soul. And so when you read, for example, 1 Thessalonians 5, um, some have misused this to, to talk about there being three parts of us, but I don't want to get into that discussion. I just want you to see what Paul says. There's just one example. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I find it very encouraging that Paul says, may He sanctify you completely. I mean every part of you. Body, soul, spirit. Everything that is you, may He sanctify you completely. Okay? Extremely important. As body and soul creatures, God cares about us wholly. Body and soul. And all you have to do go to the incarnation but we'll get there in a minute in fact who does the body belong to yes first corinthians 6 verses 3 through 15 we won't go there just because of time the first corinthians 6 3 through 15 the body belongs to the lord and the lord to the body for the body okay i find that hugely important the body belongs to the lord and the lord for the body okay so he's not he does not despise our bodies there are streams of Christianity that have said and thought and acted as if the body stinks and we don't like it and neither does Jesus. So I can't wait to die to get rid of this prison house to the soul. What? Say what? No, 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 no. Think of the incarnation. What does the incarnation tell you if nothing else? And I should tell you lots of things. But what does the incarnation tell you about your body and soul? Huh? It matters to God. Yes, yes. If it was that important to God, how much so more so for us? And how comforting. Right? When you feel like it doesn't matter. To realize it does matter. My body does matter. And my psyche, my soul, the the non-physical aspect of me. All of me. Okay? Alright. I'm going somewhere with this. I really am. So therefore, fittingly and biblically, our bodies are just as important, our bodies are just as important in worship as are our souls and spirits. In fact, the incarnation tells you this and far more, which we just talked about. And so if that's the case, then our bodies are intended and expected to be engaged in worship. Let me say it again. Our bodies are intended and expected to be engaged in worship, engaged in prayer, 
We're not, God did not create us to be little brains. Did you ever watch that Star Trek show where uh, the people had evolved to the point that all it was was just this, this head and this brain, big brain, and there's no body because who needs a body? I've got it all up here. God didn't make us that way. He does not intend us to respond to Him that way. And so all the way through Scripture, you have this physical physicality to worship. So, for example, in Psalm 95, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. It's not just an emotional, right? Let us bow down and let us kneel. In case you didn't get the first point, he makes it the second time, right? Kneeling in worship is a fitting thing to do. Kneeling in prayer is a fitting thing to do. You're throwing your body, you've heard me say this before, you're throwing your body into your begging, you're throwing your posture into your praying. And it's beautiful, and it's biblical, and God loves it. Okay? Uh, Acts 20, verse 36. When Paul had said these things to the Ephesian elders, when he had said these things to the Ephesian elders, he knelt down and prayed with them all. They were on a, out on a beach. And he knelt down, knelt down and prayed with them. I, I had a guy one time show up years and years and years ago here, actually. And he was all upset because we knelt in worship. Oh, that's too Roman Catholic. So was it, that's what he said. And it was like, but it's in the Bible, right? So it does happen, and I get it. I didn't shame him or anything. It wasn't a big deal. So Solomon, in 2 Kings 8, 22, Solomon stands. He stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of the assembly of Israel, and he spread out his hands to heaven. Now notice what he's doing. What's he doing with his body? He's standing and lifting up his hands, right? So his body is engaged. Now, there are reasons to stand. He's actually before the altar at the dedication of the temple. Later, he'll actually kneel down and be standing up on his knees praying, okay? Why do we stand? Think about when we stand in worship, when we stand at reading of Scripture and so forth. Why do you stand? Why do you stand in society? Respect. And we're not the only ones. This is Eastern and Western. This is um, most of all seven continents. It's a pretty standard uh, procedure. Some, some tribes or some regions, maybe they don't. But almost overarchingly, whether African or South American or whatever, standing is a sign of respect. To stay seated means you're very, very comfortable in most places. And that you're an equal with the person who just came in. Okay, so standing is a sign of respect. I mean, notice that Solomon, as he's standing, he's standing... Before the altar, the fire has come down. He knows he's in the presence of the holy, but then he will kneel down in a minute, okay? And the lifting of hands, there's all kinds of things that that's going on there, but it's just very natural. I mean, how many of you all went to rock concerts? Come on, be honest with me. Right, besides, yeah, thank you. Thank you for your honesty. God bless you. Yes. All right, maybe you didn't go to rock concerts. Maybe you've been to football games or soccer games or rugby games. And at some point, what happens with your hands? You do the wave, right? All right, what else do you do with your hands? Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 right? You clap, right? Your hands are raised up. It's just kind of a universal, I'm, I'm, I'm excited, right? Or you raise out your hands like my kids would want me to pick them up and they'd say, Daddy, right? So it was a sign of neediness, right? And I want you, I want affection, there's all kinds of things that lifting your hands actually portrays. It depends on 
what you're doing and what you're after or what you're, you're praying for and so forth, okay? All right, in fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.8, and I'm just giving you a sample of bodily positions. We could go through a whole bunch of other passages. But he says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. It's funny, John Calvin, referring to this verse, says it's almost sacramental. That we ought to be. There's some sense in which we are tangibly, in a, in a way, almost sacramentally touching heaven as we lift our hands in prayer. I mean, you can disagree with him all you want, but I just find it interesting. He thought this was a very important verse, okay? Yes? Yes? Oh, sorry, 1 Kings 8.22. Not 2 Kings, 1 Kings. Thank you. What is that Aesop's fable one about the monkey putting his hand in there and grabbing a nut and he can't, if he doesn't open his hand, he can't get it out and he's trapped, right? I always think of this, the hymn that we sing. You know, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, right? And so, yeah, very much so. So any of those things, but it's interesting that he, he actually says this and I, I think it's important for us to realize if we really do care about Scripture, we're going to be, it may feel awkward to you, that's fine. I'm not talking about like this, where everybody can see you. All right, everybody notice, I got my hands up in prayer. All right, I'm really holy, right? Just, but there is a sense in which we're physically engaged in some way. It's not grandstanding, it's not showmanship, right? So we kneel and serve in worship, throwing our bodies into our begging. We stand in our worship, throwing our posture into our praying, okay? We lift our hands at times, and many of you lift your hands when it comes to the benediction, uh, I'm seeing, I, I do see a few more actually lifting their hands as we've seen the, the doxology. Very fitting, okay? Very fitting. And there's nothing wrong with it. And then, so the charismatics do it. So what? Maybe it's what one of the things they got right. Right? It's all there in Scripture. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So when I do self-defense, anybody in here did self-defense with me? I always, yeah, yeah. So when I tell you, when, when somebody's attacking, the first thing you do, you put your hands up because it's the universal symbol of help, right? But it's also, there's, there's reasons for it. But it's, it is, it's very visual. I need, I need help, right? Good. All right, I'll, and this is just a sample. We could go through prostration. We could go through other things as well. But it's just to show that we, our bodies are to be engaged. Yes, sir. a great question. Uh, there's probably long historical background. So if you think about it, here's a break. Here's a break in your head, chronologically. So we were doing those things, but then over a period of centuries, we slowly began, worship began to get moved to the professionals. They did all the actions, and we just stood around. Well, now you have century-long break of being engaged physically and verbally in worship, and then when the reformers began to restore worship to the congregation, you have that in the background. And I do think in the other side of it, we do, we do emphasize 
sometimes to an extreme, the, the rational and academic, and we fall into those Gnostic traps where we make that the theme, right? And so, but knowing that our bodies are to be involved and that it's okay. I mean, I, I love that, uh, this is my illustration. I mean, can you imagine Jerry was proposing to Cindy? This was a long time ago, okay? He's proposing to Cindy. He had his hands in his pockets. Cindy, would you marry me? Now, what do you think his body just broadcast to Cindy about his petition? He could have cared less. Right? But Bill, Bill went to Yvonne. He said, Yvonne, would you marry me? And Yvonne's heart, I trust me, it went like this. Well, yeah, okay. Right? Because what did his body just broadcast about his petition? Sincerity. He even humbled himself physically, he humbled himself physically before her. Right? In that petition. Think about that. When we're doing those things, it fits, so it, the, the body part fits the petition. That's the key. The body part fits the position. If you just got informed that someone very dear to you had died and you fall on the ground weeping, that's very fitting. Right? The body fits what you're petitioning, what you're asking. You bring it in in that fitting way. So for us, for example, in morning worship, when we kneel, we kneel at confession of sin. We could kneel at a few other places. There are some other places we could kneel, but it's very fitting. We kneel as suppliants confessing our sins at the confession of sin. But then we get up and receive the pardon. We could stand. We could raise our hands like we do at the benediction to receive it, but either way, we do it. And then uh, we do some other things throughout the service. Okay, they're physical, but they're to fit the position of what we're doing. Does that make sense? Okay, any questions or any observations on this? Yes, sir. Uh, I mean, it was a late invention. I mean, it's Basil of Caesarea, one of the first to mention it. That's fourth century, and it wasn't normally done. It's just one of those things that's like, it doesn't really matter one way or the other. There was probably a reaction because it became a matter that you had to, all Christians had, had to, not could, had to. And a lot of the reformers pushed against the had-tos that were imposed, like, fasting on every Friday and not eating any sausage and stuff like that. And what does Luther say? I'll eat sausage on Friday if I want to. Right. So they, a lot of rejection of the had-tos, but there was no, there's no necessarily that this is forbidden, per se. Yeah, they still do. So, I mean, it's just... You know, we do all kinds of little things. Sometimes people will light candles in their, where they're praying at, just not because it does anything special to God. It doesn't move heaven. It just, it's just somehow fits the mood that they're in. So it can be very fitting. Yeah. Anybody else? Any other questions on that? Yes.
Yeah, I mean, I think Jesus' emphasis is actually on the vain part. I mean, if you realize that they're actually using prayers together, and that's actually the flow of Scripture already, and then Jesus commands us to use the Lord's Prayer. He doesn't command us just to let it guide us, but actually to pray it. So there's no forbidding repetition. So I think His emphasis is on the vain repetition. So think about singing hymns. How often have you sung a hymn? Come on, let's be honest now. You sing a hymn, and the next thing you know, you're at the next verse, and you go, wait, how did I get there? Right? Right, you just put in autopilot, right? And then, but I, but I think more what Jesus is referring to falls into the quantity. So asking the same prayer over and over and over again, that quantity, like that will move heaven. So you think about Buddhists have the prayer, the prayer streamers or whatever, and they have a prayer wheel, and it's the same thing over and over and over again. The idea is this will bring all the cosmic forces to finally coalesce right there, something like that. I think the emphasis is more on the vein. Yeah. Good question. All right, so how does all of this guide your thinking about preparing? If your body matters, now I'm moving a little bit different. How does this guide your thinking about preparing for worship physically as well as mentally and devotionally? That's right, right. right. Start taking Tai Chi so you get a little bit more flexibility, right? Yes. How about going to bed at a little earlier Saturday night so that way you're not falling asleep Sunday? Getting your body prepared for worship. I have to not drink coffee during Sunday school to be ready for worship because I would be running to the restroom halfway through the service. You know how embarrassing that is? I've done it once. I did it in Midland and I have swore I would never do it again. Okay? And so, I mean, just getting your bodies ready for worship because my body matters. Just like you would get your mind, your heart, hopefully. You're getting that prepared. So very fitting to get your body prepared. Okay? All right. Let's see. What's the next one? Throwing our bodies into our begging and our postures into our praying, then, is not what? It's not simple. It's not wrong. Anybody else want to put it something else in the not there? It's not showmanship. It's not a Roman Catholic hangover or whatever somebody wants to throw in there. It's not charismatic. It's not drumming up emotions. Yeah, say it again. It's not what? It's not necessary. Okay. Interesting. Sure. Right, I'm not I'm not mandating any of that. I'm just simply making the case, right? But that's a good good point. I mean, because I I thought about this the other day, or today I actually was thinking about it again today, and you kind of touched on it. When you get to that point in life where kneeling is actually a sacrifice and you're gonna die right afterwards, you know, it may not be wise to kneel and is God any is yeah is God any more impressed that you, no right so very very true I had a uh, a friend Charles Hageman was an Anglican priest used to they used to own the building that we ended up buying in Midland when he died he died at 
in the service at communion at the point where he was kneeling at communion. The blood pressure goes up when you kneel. And he died then. I thought, wow, take me that way, Jesus. That was awesome, right? He went the way he wanted to go. So. But yeah, you're right. And, it, and it's not necessary for our salvation, but it's, very, it's fitting, right? It is fitting. Okay, yes. Right. Yeah, there's a value to it. Right. Um, and so, yeah, there you said it. So it, it is what? If it's not, it's not what, but it is what. So it's, it is, there is a value to it, okay? And it's not something to be disdained. Oh, yeah. Anybody else? Berta, did you write a book review on Amazon? Thank you. None. Nobody in this room. Yeah. Nobody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great question. I mean, that's, it's just like anything else we do. It's little by little, usually, right? And then uh, maybe some practice at home. I know when, when our kids were at home, and I think probably some of you have done the same thing, we actually taught them the Lord's Prayer. We taught them doxology. We, we actually used them in our family worship every night. And so when they came into worship, they were like, oh, I know this part. And then they jump in. So, so I love it when your kids jump in, by the way, when we do the Lord's Prayer and the doxology. It's awesome, okay? But it was the same thing with some other things, like kneeling. We would on occasion kneel. We would talk about it at home. So we would practice it at home to get ready for, for worship. It's one of the things that we did. And so um, it just, it, you just take it bit by bit. And then there's other aspects too. If you need somebody else to help out, it's always, it's always valuable sometimes to say, you know, Scott, can you take care of Ben and guide him through this part of the service, you know, or something like that. I mean, we did that in Midland many times. Don't, talk, don't, don't say anything to Caleb and Derek, but there were very many times that, couple of couples in our church in Midland would take the boys and relieve Anna and they would sit them down next to them and they would guide them through the worship. And it's amazing because they didn't change their diapers, the kids listened to them. Right? And so it's very valuable. We are a, court, we are a body and we made a vow that we would support these parents in raising these kids and that may include inviting the kids to sit with us if the parents are okay with that. And let them participate with us in this so they can realize mom and dad are not as weird as they thought they were. They may be weird, but they're not as weird as they thought they were. Well, they were just asking me to take you. What are you talking about? Yes, David.
Yes. 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 In a written form, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's one of my one of my my thoughts about the repetitive stuff as well. Is that very same thing, having you know knowing people who've got mac, macular degeneration and they can't read anymore, and they can still worship, because there's still parts of the worship that they remember and they we do together, and then you have somebody maybe who's got English as a second language and it's not very good, they still can grasp that and and ingest that you know and, and use that so and little kids. Right. Yeah, when it's word intensive, and unless they can be patient and then gain the repetitive part, and then we have to be patient with them and walk them through the rest of it. And so, by the way, that's one of the values of our public reading of Scripture. We read out loud uh, uh, Old and New Testament and some other things, and then in the evening, more reading is because the value is, especially somebody who's illiterate, which, you know, they're actually getting to hear the Word. Right? We all need it. But they they get to hear it, right? So, all right. So, anything else? I think we're we're done with this. Are you finding the class helpful in any way? Yep. Good. Okay. So uh, we did that one. We did this one. We did this one. So next week uh, we'll do creeds and probably robes. Probably do creeds and robes. Okay, that's what we'll do next week. So um, there you go. Now here in just a few minutes we get an opportunity to throw our bodies into our begging and our postures into our praying. So let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, that you love us body and soul. You love us so much that your Son became a full-blown human being, body and soul, to save us body and soul. And so, Lord, we come uh, giving you thanks for our bodies as well as the non-physical part of us. We pray that you would continue to sanctify us body, soul, and spirit, and that you who are faithful will do it. We believe that. Lord, prepare our hearts and our bodies now as we get ready to enter into the great assembly to worship you. Um, Help us to be prepared. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lift our hearts and those who are coming in with heavy hearts. May they walk forth from this today, from the assembly, with hearts healed and restored and with some sense of hope for the future. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.